Welcome to the Die Hard Minute, where Movies by Minute hosts talk about the 1988 John McTiernan-directed movie Die Hard, one minute at a time. I'm Rick from the Mad Max Minute podcast. And I'm Julia, also from Mad Max Minute. And we are talking today about Minute 102, which begins with John apologizing for being so dismissive, and it ends with Hans pointing out how the FBI is going to give them a miracle. I love the opening of this minute. It's John and Al broing out a little bit. Yeah. It's only a line or two. It's really not that much. But Al, like, switches into bro mode well, I a like, little bit. <laughs> well, I like that John starts off this minute by apologizing for being so dismissive. He's able to recognize the severity of Al's position and walk back on how goofy he was being. About the whole, you know, you're a paper jockey and you ran over your captain's foot. And then he realizes, oh man, this situation is heavy. And I really should not have been so light about it. Yeah, I do really appreciate that John is so empathetic. And this is a carryover from yesterday. I didn't really mention it yesterday. But John is very non-judgmental about the whole thing. About Al shooting a kid. He's judgmental about Al being a paper jockey. But once it's about shooting a kid, he gets very non-judgmental. Mm-hmm. He's very sympathetic. He understands that this is any cop's worst nightmare. And he immediately eases up and then, yeah, apologizes. And then Al, who's still trying to keep it light, he, he didn't want to make it heavy. Yeah. He was kind of backed into an honesty corner. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he's been honest and he... He said what he felt he wanted and needed to say, and now he's ready to move on to different things. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily dissuade John's feelings, though. He still feels really bad about it. But the whole time I'm seeing John sitting in this bloodstained bathroom on that countertop, one of the things that really distract me, John may feel like shit, but his shirt looks like shit. Can you believe that this thing started out white? It is filthy. Yeah, it's pretty grody. I'm trying to think of where that shirt has been. Obviously, John has been working very hard. He's been sweating quite a bit. So that's doing the shirt no favors. Mm -hmm. The shirt has also been through a construction zone. And the air vent. And the air vent. And the elevator shaft. Yes. So lots of dirt and dust, especially in the construction area. The drywall going up Mm -hmm. with the putty to like fill holes and fill joints and stuff. Once you sand that stuff, that dust, oh, it gets everywhere. It stays in the air. It is the worst thing to get rid of. So all of that dust is now all over that shirt as well. Yeah. Plus, to get into that bathroom, he was dragging himself along the ground. Uh-huh. Because he wasn't able to put pressure on that foot. Like, the stuff in that shirt, ooh, just... Yeah, you were skeeved out yesterday by him walking barefoot on linoleum. Yeah. That shirt is a hundred times whatever his feet had touched. There are so many things about John's situation that I would not be able to handle. (laughs) Like, little things. Not even important things. I'm not even talking about escaping from terrorists by climbing through ductwork or jumping through shafts and attacking people through tables. Like, little things. Like, being barefoot in general and having a really filthy shirt. Just, I'm not cut out to be an 80s action hero. (laughs) (laughs) It would not work for me. I'm okay with that. So John feels terrible, and Al's down by the radio, and he says, well, then this won't matter. The LAPD is not calling the shots down here anymore. And as he's talking about the LAPD calling the shots, we get a nice POV shot looking at the side of the building. It pans over, and we see the feds following some city engineer 
And then Deputy Police Chief Robinson is also there as well. But they're walking up an incline past Al's car, which is still perched up against that embankment, I guess is what it's called. And it's kind of crazy that the car is still there, that it's that it hasn't slid down the wall. So it must have that back bumper wedged up against something, keeping it in place. Right. It must. And... That car, if it's not sliding and it's not an immediate danger, is a very low priority. Oh, yeah. No one cares about that car because, as far as they know, they've got terrorists in the building. Right. Now, I don't recall in that panning shot where you can see his car still up on the retaining wall. Is there anybody near it? Well, the feds in this They're like walking, walking past, past it. it but... Right. It's probably like a no zone. Yeah. Don't go near that car. We can't sacrifice (laughs) the time to pull it down right now. We think it's secure where it is, but nobody go near it. Yeah. Don't tap on it. Don't poke it. Just focus on other things. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We cut back to John sitting in the bathroom and he guesses very quickly that it's the feds. And Al says, you've got it. Guesses right on the first try. Not bad. And after Al says you got it, we cut back to the shot of the city engineer, the feds, and Deputy Police Chief Robinson walking up that hill. Now, there is a very small detail (laughs) in this shot that corresponds to the last time we saw the four of them going up this hill. I was paying attention to how quickly Deputy Police Chief Robinson was walking up that hill, and the pace that I observed was that he was taking one step about every second. So when they cut away to John and to Al and then back to them, if they were keeping that pace all the way up the hill, when they cut back around second 25, they should be already cresting the top of that hill. They should not still be on the grass. But when they cut back, it's like they haven't even moved or anything like that. It's a minute detail. It's very tiny and has no bearing on the plot. It's probably about as nitpicky as you'll get in the movies by minute genre. But <laughs> it was odd cutting away from it, coming back and just having it be like that. I was like, huh, that's weird. Very weird. So from there and the very slowly walking FBI guys, we jump inside to uh, Theo and Gruber. Mm-hmm. So Theo is sitting behind a bank of monitors and Hans is standing over him. There's another thief terrorist. Are we, well, that's what are a, we calling these guys? Are that's we a matter thieves or terrorists? of debate. I, hmm, I still see them as terrorists. I know they insist that they are thieves who put up a front of terrorists so the FBI would get involved and cut the power, which we're going to learn is their protocol when there's a terrorist attack. I still see them as terrorists mm-hmm. because in acting like terrorists, they are causing terror. And so I still see them as terrorists. Okay. Sounds good. They call themselves thieves because it makes them feel noble. Well, I don't care about how they feel. They're causing terror. Okay. So well, there's a third unnamed terrorist that I didn't bother to look up who it was, but he's in the room. Oh, it's not Blondie? No. Oh, okay. No, he's elsewhere. Okay. So Theo is sitting there behind the monitors, and he says, all right, those are the city engineers. They're going into the street circuits because he can see the truck. He can see where everybody is. And as he's looking at these monitors, they show the FBI walking over to the city engineer truck, and Theo continues, those guys in the suits, I don't know who they are. Hans, however, knows exactly who they are, and he tells Theo, that's the FBI. So Hans leans over Theo as he watches the monitors, and he says, they're ordering the others to cut the building's power, regular as clockwork. Which, 
We're going to hear on Thursday the idea of something called the FBI terrorist playbook or something like that. It's something that's going to come up later on. But Hans knows somehow that in the event of a terrorist attack, as he's telling Theo this, that the circuits that cannot be cut are cut automatically as a way to deter terrorists. And so this realization, it dawns on Theo and he gets this look on his face. Hans says clockwork, Theo says, or a time lock. Because as soon as that power is cut, that electromagnetic lock is going to open wide. Yeah, I guess I'm having trouble with this. So this time lock, if you cut the circuits to remove power from it, it will lock itself down, right? So right now they've got the big heavy door to the vault. They've cut through the mechanical pins that hold it in place, and the only thing that's keeping that door shut is an electromagnetic seal so that the door is holding itself to the wall right. like a magnet on a fridge. Yeah. If they cut power to that building, that electromagnetic lock loses power and ceases to be an electromagnetic lock. Okay. So without the magnet holding it shut, that door is going to slide right open. Okay. Well, why do they need the FBI to do it? Why can't they do it themselves? Because it's a circuit that cannot be cut from within the building. It's a security measure by the Nakatomi Corporation to make sure that this doesn't happen. Okay, I still have two big old fat issues. Why didn't they, wouldn't it have been easier for this thief group to send somebody into the sewers, into the underground area where uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday sometime, we see a guy just goes down there, pulls the plug. Like, why couldn't they just do that? No, wait, no, rewind. Because he doesn't just go down there. He radios to a guy at headquarters. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Then I think I'm okay with that, although I'm still not crazy about this plan. But back on the Nagatomi side, if that lock is so freaking important, which it is, why doesn't it have its own isolated power source? Why is it in the city grid at all? Mm Mm-hmm. Should it have a battery or something? And the battery is inside the vault? Possibly. Maybe the Nakatomi Corporation looked at, I think there's a total of seven layers of security in that vault where the electromagnetic lock is the seventh. Yes. They've broken the first one and they've cut through the other five. Yeah. Perhaps the Nakatomi Corporation just figured that it was such a tall order to get through the six previous lines of defense that they figured by the time someone got to that seventh that they could rely on the city to not shut the power off. Well, that was stupid. I don't like this plan. On whose side? On the Uh, corporation's side or the terrorist side? Because it sounds like you're more angry at the corporation for not having a better vault. Both of them. I'm frustrated at both of them. I think Nagatomi, I'm certainly not going to say they did a piss poor job of securing their assets, but they took such precautions and then did something dumb with the very last one that could so easily have been prevented with its own power source that was also kept inside mm-hmm. the vault. So I'm frustrated with them for going so far and then not finishing up. And I'm frustrated with the terrorists because wouldn't it have been a better plan overall if their plan was to never be detected and to be able to just walk away on their own rather than make sure that they get detected so that the FBI will shut off the power externally and also provide them with their escape. It just seems like it's more of an elaborate plan than it needed to be. Maybe I've just seen heist movies too much. Maybe too many Ocean's Eleven and the Italian job and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. Their original plan, which is something that was actually in our first week, 26 through 30. Mm -hmm. (coughs) Mm-hmm. 
They walk in, they make a show of force, they take Takagi up to the penthouse. If Takagi handed over the password to that vault, they open the vault, they empty the vault, they leave. Story's over. No one knows they're there except for the people at the party and Takagi. And there's nothing he can do about it except for give a description and hope that the police find the terrorists. So plan A was very simple. Plan B, which I think is the one that's more intricately thought out, that one relies on them having this facade of being terrorists so that the FBI show up and then they start to deal with the FBI directly, which is why they have the drill to break through the layers of security. If John hadn't shown up to muck around with things, they probably would have had to get the FBI to show up by notifying someone outside of the building that there was something going on through some measure. Because when... John pulls the fire alarm. They shut off the fire alarm and send the fire trucks away. When Al shows up, fake Huey Lewis down there by the opening desk, he lets him walk around a little bit and then just lets him leave. The only reason that Al sticks around is because John throws something through the window and makes a ruckus and whatnot. The only thing that I don't understand about their plan B is how they expected the FBI to show up without someone making the police stick around. That's the only thing that I don't think is very clear cut in this yeah, movie. Yeah, because they did a really good job of locking the building down mm -hmm. and preventing anything from getting out, which was an issue for a little while. Yeah. So they must have had a plan of somebody calling into the FBI. Like making a tip or something like that. Yeah, an Allow anonymous one tip. one person to call the cops, yeah. say, hey, I'm being held hostage by terrorists. And then the LAPD say, oh, no, terrorists call in the FBI. FBI show up, taking long enough that they're able to cut through the, the vault. FBI show up, cut power to the entire grid, which we're going to find out later on this week is no small thing. The power being cut to Nakatomi Plaza is going to ruin a lot of Christmases, but we're going to deal with that mm -hmm. mm. tomorrow. <laughs> okay. But then from there, vault opens up, they empty it, and then there's the whole plan with the explosives on the roof, which is a whole other part of the plan. Which we do not have to touch. Yep, we don't have to worry about it. The, not the details our responsibility. of it. <laughs> not something that we need to handle. But it's an incredibly complicated plan, and I appreciate that their plan A was get the stuff from Takagi, plan B was the complicated one. That they initially showed up thinking this has the possibility of being very simple. Something that we should have talked about in our first set of minutes with that meeting with Takagi and Gruber that honestly, I can't remember if we did talk about. If he had given them the information that they wanted, do you think they would have let him survive? Or would you think they would have killed him anyways? I think they would have brought him back down to the party to keep with the others. Really? Yeah. So I think they would have shot him anyways. <laughs> no, I, I think if he had given them the codes, they would have just walked him back down to the party. Because they're not hiding their faces. They're not trying to obscure what they look like. Everybody in the party knows exactly what every member of that group looks like. Yeah, that tells me that they have no intention of leaving anybody alive who can ID them. Possibly. I think I think now that now that we're working this out, I think they were going to kill them all. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't want to jump on that bandwagon because I feel like they're thieves, not murderers. Now, some people, Carl, I could see as murderers. I don't see Gruber as the leave unseen because no one's left alive to see. Well, he professes to be honorable and sophisticated. <sighs> I think that's a front that he has put up. For himself, he thinks, he genuinely thinks that he is honorable and sophisticated, but I don't think that he really is. Yeah. I think deep down, he is a morally questionable dirtbag. Well, I feel like you kind of have to be if you're willing to steal from people. 
Like there needs to be some more moral questionability if yeah. that's how you're going to make your living. <laughs> and I think he has convinced himself that he is honorable. Yeah. Because he's a psychopath on some level. Hmm. And therefore, I think he has the capability of just killing everybody. Yeah. We are so off topic. Eh, that's all right. We're kind of at the end of the minute anyway. Yeah, we kind of are. My favorite thing about the end of this minute is that Hans is giving a little monologue. Mm-hmm. And he's pretty arrogant about it. And the minute cuts him off. Yep. He's like... That makes me happy. He's leaning over Theo and he's like, The circuits that cannot be cut are cut automatically in response to a terrorist incident. You asked for miracles, Theo. I give you... Nothing. Nothing. Because the minute cuts off. (laughs) Oh, this is one of those things. I don't like Gruber. He's a very bad man who has convinced himself that he is an okay person. But Alan Rickman's portrayal of him is just so genius. And this is another example where we get this just up close of Alan Rickman just doing his thing, saying things that just sound so perfect coming out of his mouth. I love it. Mm -hmm. It's good stuff. Do you have anything else for this? It's going to be a short one. The only really other thing I have, and it's kind of weak, so I don't know if we want to get into it, is that I think Theo's a little slow on the uptake. Really? How so? Well, he didn't realize previous to Hans spelling it out that cutting the power to the grid outside the building would do the job of unlocking that final lock. I think if you know what that lock is and how that lock works, Mm -hmm. like your first thing would be, oh, well, we can cut the power further out of the system and the the lock will let go. I think that's kind of obvious. And Theo didn't make that connection. I think from a technical standpoint, Theo understands how the lock works. I think the thing that Theo didn't know is that the FBI was going to cut it for them. I feel like Hans has compartmentalized his crew. Not every terrorist in that crew knows every facet of the plan. There are some guys in the crew that are demolitions and some guys that are communications and some like discount Huey Lewis that is just going to sit down by the opening gate and he's going to pretend to be a security guard. And that's all he knows about the plan. Very true. Because didn't previously sometime in the movie, Theo expressed concern or confusion about that final lock saying, I don't know how to get that open for you. I can do all this other stuff, but I can't do that last lock. And Gruber was like, don't worry about it. I got it. Mm-hmm. Okay. I then think I'm this okay is that. him remembering that time and putting two and two together. All he yeah. needed was the second variable. It's like Hans was saying, okay, one plus X equals Y. And he had a vague idea about what Y was, but he wasn't sure. And he just needed that second variable to drop into place, which is why when he catches on, he gets that big old smile on his face because he realizes exactly what's happening and how great of a plan it is for them as thieves. That smile, it's its so great. He's such a great face. Yeah. And that smile is so perfect. (laughs) All right. I guess Theo's not an idiot. I guess he's smart. (laughs) (laughs) That's really all I have. I'm glad I was able to win you over. Oh, thank you. I think that about does it for today. Much shorter than yesterday's episode. I don't have any cracked articles to pull up or anything like that. (laughs) But tomorrow we'll be back. We're going to join the FBI outside the building. We're going to... 
spend some time with the city engineers. <laughs> Those poor guys. Yeah. I cannot wait to get down to them because they don't deserve all of the crap that's thrown at them. And they are just mm, yeah. taking all sorts of abuse. <laughs> it's awful. But we'll spend plenty of time doing that tomorrow. Yep. If you would like to hear more of us, you can find the Mad Max Minute podcast on our homepage, madmaxminute.com. Follow us on Twitter at Mad Max Minute and join our Facebook group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. The Die Hard Minute is a collaboration of Movies by Minute podcasters. Find out more about the Movies by Minute format at moviesbyminutes.com. Die Hard Minute is produced by Jim O'Kane. Our intro music is by John Stebby. Our closing theme is by Tom Geyer. You can follow Die Hard Minute on Twitter at Die Hard Minute, on Facebook at Die Hard with a Podcast Listener's Limo, and at DieHardMinute.com. Subscribe to this podcast by searching Die Hard Minute on iTunes and Google Play. And until next time, if you ask for miracles, I give you. Tell me you got that. I got it, I got it. Hit your heart on Channel 5. <laughs>